I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beerpai people, who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Hi and welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast, where we have collaborative conversations, cross-pollinate and connect, as we span our wings across topics such as feminine wisdom, womb wisdom, herbal plant medicine, natural fertility awareness, postpartum care, sacred sisterhood, sacred motherhood, women's circles and deep connectedness. If you're here, I believe you too are on a journey to reclaim and revitalise ancient feminine wisdom in a modern context. Not only for ourselves now, but for future generations to come. Thank you so much for being here. Hi everyone, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I'm currently sitting here in my parents-in-law's um, kids' playroom on a busy highway, so hopefully it's not too noisy. And I've just returned from camping. And I have a guest today joining me from Cancun in Mexico. Super excited. I connected with this guest um, quite a few years ago after we'd been through um, a similar life event. And I've just been following Beata, Beata Afoldi, that's who I've got here, um, since then and watching her work continue to unfold and being inspired. So Beata is a medicine woman, teacher, workshop facilitator, shamanic healer, seer, speaker and intuitive with a gift for assisting individuals in deep transformation. Beata weaves many threads together, drawing on her life experience, soul wisdom, ancestral lineage, studies in shamanic healing, yoga teacher training, counselling, eco-psychology, ceremonial work and plant medicine to live a full life aligned with purpose and in turn assist others to do the same. Beata has been a contributing author to Shamanism for a New Millennium, which reached um, Amazon number one bestseller at one point. Featured in an upcoming documentary or a recently released documentary, Women of the Heart. So thanks so much for being here, Beata. Before we jump into it, I'll just give all the listeners out there a little um, trigger warning that we will be talking about life and loss and um, loss of uh, children. And if anyone's feeling a bit sensitive about that, to maybe come back when you're feeling a bit better. But I do encourage people to come back and listen, especially you know someone who you've had a similar experience because we are talking from our own experiences and we're just sort of giving a different narrative to often what's out there and and hopefully contribute to greater healing and um and greater understanding of what loss can bring Mm -hmm. into our lives so thanks so much Fiata, for being here Hey, beautiful woman. Thank you so much. You were dropping in and out. Oh, okay. uh, My Skype, my, my internet connection, I'm not sure what's going on, but as long as you can hear me, that's, that's a good thing. I can hear um, Hopefully it's not my awesome. connection and hopefully my voice is coming through as well, but we'll find out. I can hear you perfectly. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so yes, just just uh, going back with the uh, documentary, it will be released towards the end of this year, um, firstly in Australia and then worldwide. And what I love about this uh, documentary film that it was created by women 
for women and really honoring the journey of the heroine um, as far as it was kind of the anecdote to Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Maureen Murdoch ended up creating The Heroine's Journey. And I think, you know, a beautiful segue to what you were talking about as well is can our points, these points of huge loss and deep loss, and as you know, you know, uh, you and I both met around seven, seven years ago. Uh, I had lost my son a year before in the process of a three-day labour, Alakai, and you had lost your little one after that. But we both met at a time where we were grieving. And, um, and I think for me, uh, I really did go into that deep, dark journey, that dark night of the soul, obviously, you know, Alakai, was someone that I had wanted for so long and obviously carrying him for nine months and then for him to pass away in the process of a three-day labour was was uh, so shocking and so devastating. Um, but through all of this, you know, then my mother's consequence, consequently uh, becoming ill two weeks afterwards and then dying of cancer, my husband and I divorcing, you know, there were so many things in that process. What I found within this dark night was also um, an opportunity to really dig deep and, and find the meaning for me, find the meaning around what this loss was and then also what it was calling me into in my life. And I haven't stopped since. And, and you know, I say this to everyone, Alakai and the journey of him coming into my life um, and then exiting in that way, in the physical form, was the greatest gift of my life. Because really what he instigated was for me to really step into my life and start living it fearlessly and courageously. Um, hence one of the re reasons why I'm now in Mexico living with my beloved and why we're creating all the work that we're doing now. I don't know... Well, I know for sure I would not be doing this and I wouldn't have had the courage to really step into my life in this way had Alakai not shown up in the way that he did and, and the way that he actually continues to do because for me in my worldview and what in my personal experience is that uh, our bodies may die and we may die but our soul lives, lives on and continues to live on. So... I would be a hypocrite to say that I don't have a relationship with my son now. In fact, it's even deeper, just like my relationship with my mum. In her lo loss of her life, I was able to understand her more and also cultivate and develop a much deeper relationship without the confines of the personality per se. So it's not that it's just an intellectual experience for me. I have a very deep embodied experience with both of these souls that are still in my life very strongly mm, that's so powerful it's a few things that really spoke to me there I also after so my son passed um, a year after Alakai around the same time and Bodhi my boy uh, mm. also after a very long labor and he passed just after birth um, an hour after birth and in that deep deep dark grief that I really, uh, really tried to allow. I tried not to fight it. I tried to just let myself drown in it and the waves really take me. Um, 
I also just kept hearing the words dark night of the soul. And obviously I'd come across it at some point in my life, but I was not familiar. And so it just kept coming to me. This was only within a couple of weeks after Bodhi passed, was born and then passed. And so I looked it up and straight away I knew when, as I was reading the definition of that, that this was a spiritual initiation. We have many through life and birthing a child is definitely entering into motherhood. That way is one of major rites of passage. But to have life and death so closely entwined is a very unique type of rite of passage. Plus in that spiritual experience is a dark night of the soul. So I really, I hear how that can, that can really become an event in your life, a spiritual event. And that's what I'm hearing from you is that when it becomes a spiritual event and then death, the loss of your mother, oh, my goodness, as I followed that, I just was sending you so much love, such a huge mm. time for you. Mm. Um, and I think in our society we really have lost that aspect. We, we know that death and that grief is sad and it's an immensely transformative experience. But when it becomes a spiritual experience as well, it just becomes a bit more holistic and it means that we can live with that and, and create something from that much easier. Mm. And I love that um, yeah, your concept of, of still, it's not that they're gone forever, it's just they've changed form. Absolutely, Shelley. And I think, you know, given the work that I'm, that I facilitate in the world and the way that I choose to live my life, you know, and, and for you as well, you know, having that experience, I would have felt like such a hypocrite if suddenly it was all of those things that I truly believed in, yet obviously hadn't had this intense and deeply uh, traumatising and personal experience. I would have felt like a hypocrite because for me at the end of the day, ever since I was a child, I always had that awareness that, 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 there was a spiritual dimension to our lives. I was very deeply connected to that and introduced to spiritual concepts also from a very young age from my mother. Um, I think when, as you said, the initiation of, of, of life and death in such a, and you to be able to have a, a, an, a, an hour of your child alive and then to lose him in, in that way, horrific. But as you said, it's such a deep initiation. And also, you know, when we've experienced birth and death in that way, the energetic imprint of both those spaces is so similar. And people that, that I know that work as death doulas, women that I know that are really supporting families and individuals for that rite of passage that we each have to, have to take back into spirit, say the same thing, mm. that that energetic space of, of birth, if you've been in this, and thank goodness I've also been in the space of, of a dear friend's birth as well and supporting her in that a couple of years ago, um, it is very much the same energy. It's expansive. It's profound. It's potent. And if we choose to look at it in a different way, from an energetic point of view, my invitation is it doesn't have to be laced with all the social constructs of what 
our culture laces death and passing with because what if it's the most incredible time of that soul's life that finally they're free and they've returned to spirit what if it's just a question it's not that it is that way but what if the way that us westerners have got it all back to front and and we are to look more towards our indigenous brothers and sisters and those that live a lot closer with the earth and learn from them learn from them about their death rites about how they view death and how so many of these cultures celebrate the passing of a beloved and and, and celebrate their passage and their return home mm. to spirit mm, beautiful yeah, I think so many things there. <laughs> it's actually yeah, it's a big a huge, topic. Huge topic, it? and I felt the same. So I feel like I'm so excited to explore this with you and finally be connecting and hear more of your story and really get that feeling from you. Things I didn't know, because for so many years there, especially in the early days, and as I've said, I definitely rode those waves. And and for the first year, mm. I think we spoke about this. The first year was very, very deep, dark, mm. heavy. The waves would come uncontrollably and um, yes. I, I used the ocean all the time as a metaphor and surfing and some of the waves were too big to surf. You just had to let them tumble you and you wouldn't know when they're coming and you just have to go with it. And then slowly over time, mm. the waves would become a little bit more manageable and a little bit more surfable and you could ride them and you could choose to get off yes. when you wanted and you could allow them to be as strong or as or as mellow as you needed but then after that really intense time especially roughly about a year or so and it's not like a year comes and then it ends but I felt like I, I, there was a renewal and a rebirth in me and, and very much aliveness that life was so precious and so sacred and I had feelings of this throughout in the first year and then I just had to be present it really shocked me into being present and yes. again actually I had a similar upbringing where I was exposed to spirituality I got going to Reiki circles and tarot cards around the table lots of different things and my mum was into that aspect so it wasn't new for me I grew up with that I grew up with a sense of spirit through my childhood too um, but this was next level this was saying mm. well that's nice and you've been living with that awareness but you really need to embody this and you really need to bring this into your awareness like right now like, lightning bolt hold it carry it don't let it go what you do with that that's is up to you but that embodiment was so strong and then I felt like a lot of the um, support networks I had out there were um, expressing grief in a certain way and I think it's a very valid way for some people but it wasn't my way and so I felt a little bit on the out I didn't really I think it's beautiful and I have friends and I have done this so I cook cakes um each year for Bodhi's birthday and I do that with my girls now I've got two girls now um but there were a lot of things that just I didn't need to do I didn't want to do and I felt like well how how am I honouring Bodhi? I just didn't have a model, so I was finding my own. It felt like a different way of grieving. And so when I would see your way, I really resonated with that. And it was that it was a positive experience. I wasn't mm. 
I'll always hold some aspect of sadness for that loss. How could you not? It's your child, you're a mother. But there was also this joy and thankfulness. And I felt a little bit guilty that I experienced this with the common narrative. Now, seven years later, I've found a very comfortable place with that and I can see that this is, this is healthy, this is natural, this is my way. Um, and I think there would be many, many other women out there probably feeling similar. Absolutely, because it's not the common narrative, is it? The common narrative is that you should be broken for the rest of your life. Mm. Mm. And, and it's almost expected. I mean, I, I remember hearing whispers when I had lost Alakai as well of people saying, oh, she'll never recover from this. Mm. She'll, she'll never recover. And, and um, you know, it was all well-intentioned and well-meaning, but, um, but also really indicative of, of where we are in consciousness as a society not not the fact that as you said we all and can we give each other the the possibility and the opportunity and invite each of us to have our own way of grieving like like our own way of loving like our own way with relationships with spirit with everything everything is so personal and there is no right or wrong way you know as you said you chose to cook a beautiful you choose to cook a cake every year i chose I choose to do ceremony every year for Alec High mm. and I drum and I chant and I really call in the elements. And, you know, for me, it's really, I would continue, I'd still continue to honour his birthday. But as you said, not in the way that society expects me to. Um, and for so long, uh, I think, you know, we can get hooked into grief it can become something that identifies us. And I never wanted to be, because for a long time there, because of the work that I was doing, you know, I was becoming quite visible. Uh, you know, there, there was a point there that I was concerned that I would just be identified as that, as the person, as the facilitator that had lost her child. And also recognising um my own shadow in that and my own investment in that. Um, where was I hanging on to that? Where was I buying into something that was not mine? Mm. And so there was many layers to this for me where I had to really confront myself and, and really choose, choose the path forward of becoming whole again which is what the word healing means. Uh, it's, it comes from the German word heilen, to make whole. So I couldn't hide from myself. Where were those aspects of me that were attached to the attention that I was receiving, to a, any, a, anyone going, oh, you poor thing, or, you know, everything. Like, don't forget that for us, if we are to be true facilitators of transformation and change, we have to do the work ourselves. And that means not to hide from anything. That means not to hide from the things that are uncomfortable. Where, where was I then starting to be invested in that story as well? And then when did I choose to completely go, you know what? There is a time for grieving and there is certainly also a time where it, it becomes a choice. Are you going to stay in that space? Or are you going to allow the work of spirit and of life to really do the, the deep work of needing us 
into becoming the most um, powerful human beings that we can be and what is our service to the world because it doesn't just stop there. It keeps evolving and life keeps moving forward. It doesn't go back. Mm. Yeah, so powerful, such a powerful calling to people. Yeah, I think we live in a world where of dichotomies where it has to be either totally. or rather than this and this and this and this and many things are exactly. woven into a holistic picture. I actually had people say to my face, you will be, <laughs> you'll never recover. I've had early on and even, luckily I'm stubborn <laughs> and there was a fire <laughs> me inside me that said, no, that's not true. What is recover? So, yeah, obviously you don't get over it and then never have sadness. But I knew that I wouldn't get stuck in this. But that no. is indicative, as you say, of people's um, social constructs around death and especially loss of a child, that this old image as a metaphor of the woman that wears the black scarf and the black for the rest of her life and is in mourning and never celebrates and never wears colour again. And there's no way that was ever going to happen for me. But society will try to put that image on you. And with the birthday cake thing, actually, I should clarify that I, I've done it and I've tried it because I felt like it was, <laughs> was something that I should do and I saw other people doing it. I was like, oh, that looks nice and it's nice for my girls to understand that they have a brother. But it was never really fulfilling for me. I also um, I do a lot in nature and there were a lot of nature um, symbols and and things speaking to me around um, Bodhi's birth and death and then so I go and I meditate in nature and that for me that is um, how I honour him so I'll go and I'll commune with nature more consciously I'll give time and space for that and for me as a mother when I became a mother at that point because actually during Bodhi's um, during my labour with Bodhi before his birth, I started a home birth and then transferred to hospital. And during the 24 hours I was at home, not long into my labour, my house became surrounded by ravens. So I thought there were crows at the time, but um, a neighbour wow. who's a bird watcher actually saw it all happening. He's like, no, these, that species was ravens. And I'm talking surrounded, like they were all on the roof, they were in the backyard, and it was so loud. I had lived there for quite some time and never seen that before. Um, I don't know why they never did that again. I have had birds in my um, my way, so some people will commune with God, some people will read tarot, some people do lots of things. And as I said, nature is. I try to read what's happening around me in nature. I feel that you, whatever your tool is, and whatever you're tapping into, it's a way of tapping into your own innate wisdom, your own intuitive um, knowledge, your own soul knowledge, and those things are just an external representation to help that, that communication come through. And so for me, that is birds and nature, most of the time animals. Mm. And that I'm awoke something in me mm. that there were a lot of things, but that was a, one major symbol that it was so, um, it felt eerie at the time, but now I know it was just a strong spiritual energy. Um, and it did feel quite eerie with all of the crows, but they were, apparently in many cultures um, so then I started looking at other cultures spiritual relationships with animals and tuning into my own and the ravens and the crows are a gateway for spirits in yes. and out of this world and so I knew that it was bigger than me 
And mm. so even though I would get lost in my own feeling, I knew there was something bigger going on. And that's the connection to spirit is that if you can keep bringing it out to a larger connection, that there is never really a beginning and an end. There is mm. an internal essence here. How do I connect with that in myself? Because like you said, first and foremost, what is scary? What am I afraid of in death? What am I afraid of really losing? Yes, I've lost this physical life experience with my child. But spiritually, I've lost nothing. On a soul level, I still have an eternal connection. And I need to come back to remembering mine. As I Mm -hmm. said, I, I was just don't think I was living in that awareness enough that it really is temporary and what is your eternal saying to you really live like an eternal spirit don't live like you're in a um a physical body that's going to die but bring that into your awareness because that it is temporary and and balancing both and again that's that not having either or having this holistic picture and trying to embody that so other people can see that and weave it into our cultural um, cultural fabric. I would love to hear more about what you've learned in your journey from other cultures and how they perceive death, how they celebrate the rituals around that. Well, um, I just want to quickly say you said something really important there uh, about the way that we choose to live in the Western world. I mean, and it just came to me. I mean, isn't that amazing that we live... Most of us, most people live as if our bodies will live forever and our spirits die, not the other way around, right? Yeah. It's extraordinary. And it's like, hang on, the invitation here, and I think all of us Mm. that have have really gone through something so shocking because it's one thing that an older person passes and, and, you know, they get ill and, and we prepare for their journey. But it's another thing when, when we're really talking about uh, the death of a child uh, that is so sudden because the shock and the, the disbelief and the how can this happen to me, I'm a good person, mm. all of that. But, but as you said, you know, what it woke up in me also, like, and, and I'm hearing this from you as well, is we don't have forever. Mm. We are here for such a short amount of time and we don't know when we're going to be called, when, when our contract really, when have we chosen before we've come in to, to that, okay, I've done whatever I needed to do and it's my time to leave. So um, that's what I wanted to bring into that space is that we live most of the time as if we've got forever and we don't. And, and you know, it's my action call to everyone. What, is, what are you going to leave behind for the children and for the children's children, uh, hopefully not a ravaged earth? So coming back to your question, Shelley, is, is you know, how, how have I experienced um, people uh, honouring death in other cultures? It's not that I've experienced that per se. Um, obviously, you know, travelling the world and, and being in Bali, living in Peru and places like this, um, they have just a very different way of honouring those that have passed before them. And the ancestors, the, the, the lineage that you come from becomes extremely important, not only what you're carrying as shadow but also what you're carrying as gifts as well. 
And as you said, that important relationship between us and the natural world is something that we've lost. Um, I too have a very deep connection with nature and look for science in nature myself because it's inherent within me. And since, since Alakai's passing, it's become more so. So, um, you know, the heralding of the ravens, the, the, the realm of magic, the realm of the, the, the in-between space mm. of the world. You know, my, my father uh, had a dream that night when I was in labour of uh, walking towards his truck. You know, he was working, uh, he owned a furniture removal business. So on the one side, he was walking towards his truck and it was all white. And then he walked around behind it. And then he said there was all black. Mm. And that would have been around the time that Alakai passed away. So he knew through his dream space, through the field and the world of the intangible, that something had happened that was going to be of foreboding to him. So whether through nature, whether through the field of the intangible, which we're all connected with, with each other and with the totality of life, this is the realm of the Indigenous ones. This is the realm of the first people and the people that are also deeply connected to the earth. And I'll say that we as Europeans with our ancestry also have that as well, darling. The fact that, that Christianity and all of these organised religions came in and really erased a lot of the uh, shamanistic traditions and cultures and anthropological practices from our cultures uh, is something that we're starting to come back to now. And how are we coming back to it? We're finding it through the, the, what has been popularised, popularized, which is Native American shamanism, which is Central and South America, North America, all of these types of shamanistic uh, traditions, even though that the, world, the word doesn't come from that, it comes from Siberia. But there, was, there is and there was, and it's reviving now, a very strong shamanic culture in, in Europe, all over Europe. Mainly now the ones that are recorded are the Finno-Ugric tribes, which is the Hungarian, the Finnish, the Estonian, all the way through to Siberia. But you can find it in rock carvings and anthropologists and archaeologists and people of the like, you know, a lot of people are saying that Merlin was actually a shaman, that a lot of the paganistic and the, and the Wiccan traditions also had their roots in very earth-centred shamanic practices. We're just talking about words here at the end of the day. But we were all earth-honouring people that had a very deep connection to nature, to the cycles of life and to the earth. Why? Because our survival depended on it. We were tribe people. We weren't just sitting in one house forever because we had to move with the seasons and cycles of life. We were tribal cultures. Mm. Yeah, more and more this is um, just weaving into everything and becoming <laughs> more and more my passion and common theme through different interviews is this concept of reawakening that we all have that connection to Indigenous cultures. We're living in, often we're living in post-colonisation and we're also living in patriarchy, patriarchy or post-patriarchy coming out of that. And those two mm. aspects together have suppressed a lot of the earth-based cultural practices, belief systems, languages. 
but we all have it. And so, yeah, I'm more and more called in my own journey. I, um, as I work with herbs, I just know that I'm connecting with my ancestors there. And I've always had a, a strong interest. I think I told you in witchcraft, Wiccan work. I did a public mm. speaking speech at 11 in my school about the witches and got up and ranted about how they killed all these women. But um, it's always been there in me, this interest to go back further and in my ancestral lineage to where there was that earth-based practice. And you're right, it's just words. It's just semantics. This is talking about nature-based living with the cycles, the moon cycles the yearly cycles and then greater cycles seasonally. That's right. And we still are dependent on the earth. So That's right. That's we right. Might not be when living in the Western world and not having to be um, so connected to growing our own food or collecting our own food and building our own houses all the time, we actually are very dependent and those skills innately give us a sense of connection to that dependence and that interdependence um, of our place here on earth. And so I'm really interested in how people explore and connect to their own ancestral lineage while simultaneously being inspired by other cultures. So walking that fine balance of cultural appreciation over cultural appropriation and all of that sort of thing. And, and, you know, everyone has a different idea on that, but Essentially, we are becoming more globalised than one humanity. So what we, we share and what we cross over and how we connect to our own lineage is very much um, individual. But you also have strong lineage, um, ancestral lineage to Hungary. Is that right? Yes, I, I do. I do, Shelley. And, um, you know, as you said, you know, this theme of cultural appreciation or cultural appropriation is really big. You know, so many uh, people that don't understand or haven't done a lot of research around the European histories and the European traditions didn't realise that we used drums and we had sweat lodges and we had the ideology of the world tree, the lower, the middle, the upper world, that there was trance movements, that there was herbs, that there was chanting, that there was singing. So the practices between cross-culturally around the world, even though there, there were, there were um, differences, obviously there was also a lot of similarities. So um, in my work and in the work, you know, exploring my own ancestral lineage, you know, and, and the Tungus, um, the, the, tol the Taltosh of Hungary is still very much a thriving culture and they were the, the traditional shamans and, of course, there were lots of witches and all sorts of other healers and seers and wise women. But um, that is very, very strong in the Hungarian lineage. And I had the good fortune, uh, and not necessarily in my lineage because I haven't been able to go that far back, but very much a part of the Hungarian culture is the Taltosh. And a lot of the, the Taltosh that are now still practising in Hungary um, uh, recognizing that the traditions in Hungary were very similar to the Native American traditions. So they're actually cross-referencing a lot of things. Um, so, you know, even the word indigenous, we're all indigenous to the earth. If we choose to come in with this body, we are indigenous to some land. So to, to give some people that title that they're indigenous and others are not, 
it, it robs us also of our cultural heritage. And, you know, it's a touchy topic, let me tell you. And when I bring this forward, uh, you know, there, I always inevitably get backlash here and there. But at the end of the day, I'm not here to please people. I'm here to speak my own truth. And that is where I'm coming from. And I would be doing myself a disservice and also a disservice to my ancestry um, if I wasn't coming from this perspective as well, because um, if I'm not Indigenous to this planet, where am I Indigenous to? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. And so I can't say that this person is Indigenous and that person isn't just because of the colour of their skin, because, again, I'm buying into this cultural idea of separation. And, uh, and I can't because it's... it's uh, the patriarchal system and the system of domination and um, greed and 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 power over over life has affected each and every one of us. Every man, every woman, every child. We have all been affected by by this dominant cultural paradigm. So. Um, I'd like for all of us to start bringing more unity into our discussions rather than what separates us and, and realising, uh, really realising that uh, we all come from a very deep and uh, profound, um, we are all inheritors of this earth. What we choose to do with that is up to each and every single one of us. It's not just up to the Indigenous people and by handing the power back into into oh it's up to the wisdom keepers you know we're also doing a disservice to us we need to step up alongside each and every one of us who have the vision of 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 a of an earth that is and, and a people that is deeply focused on compassion and love and care for the environment and for each other and for every single living being here mm, absolutely yeah i think it's that so that separateness, that divisive um, mindset again, that either or, and it doesn't have to be, we can simultaneously connect with our own ancestral lineage while being inspired from others, while also acknowledging and honouring um, Indigenous cultures that are currently um, experiencing so, for example, here in Australia, we've got Australian Aboriginal people, Indigenous people, and there is a unique uh, culture and there's unique wisdom and language and practices and that's diverse throughout the country. Uh, but also acknowledging where Indigenous Australians are at in their journey of sometimes revitalisation, reclamation, um, preservation um, within the society where they are sometimes disadvantaged and rising up. Yes. I can do that as a mostly European descendant white woman who's here from colonisation. I can do that and I can try my best to have those open, honest conversations and, and um, create a more, more equality and more harmony and more connectedness while at the same time acknowledging that I have an Indigenous heritage my European lineage, what that is, how that connects me to the earth and how we can share that together and then take that globally. You could go to any country and do a similar thing. It doesn't have to be either. We don't have to shrink away from our own 
um, Indigenous heritage and knowledge and wisdom and connection to spirit, if that's where it takes us, just because we're not Indigenous to the land we're in or just because there's some guilt because my ancestors were colonisers, which I don't know if mine were. Um, officially, they may have been forced to come here somewhat slaves. But um, And you could go, when I talk to people from Germany, there seems to be this ancestral guilt around what happened. And there's mm. a common story there. So it's about moving away from the guilt, acknowledging it, and then stepping into your own power. So we're not serving anyone by shrinking away from it or staying stuck in the guilt or the grief again. Totally, darling. I mean, you know, uh, this, this, this whole German guilt thing is, is culturally so indoctrinated into our system. But look what's happening in Israel and Palestine now. Mm. You know, there is no such thing as any one culture being totally innocent if we look at history, it's bathed in blood, in the bathing of blood of people conquering and vilifying those that were different for land, for this, for that, for power. What, what I think you and I are both talking about is really moving away from, from any of that and coming together and going, how can we work together? Yes, this happened in the past. And yes, these atrocities, unfortunately, are still going on. How can we do our part um, to, to step forward and, and honour the land that we are on and not shy away from the path of service that we're being called to? You know, there's a reason why you have been called to Australia. There's a reason why I was called to Australia to move away from my land of origin. You know, we were refugees. Mm. So um, I was a refugee. I, you know, my family were the first generation. And that was only, you know, I'm 49 in June. That Can you was share only... a little bit more about that? I'd love to hear a little of your story. Well, uh, I was six months old when my mum and dad decided to escape Hungary. It was communist. Uh, Russia was, was, was ruling Hungary at the time. And my mother was pregnant with my brother. And then we escaped to Italy. They, ran, they, they got on a train to Croatia. And then from Croatia, they ran across the border all night uh, over from Croatia to Italy. And... You know, the story was, you know, having a baby that could cry any moment and the guards coming and my father would have been locked in prison because my mum and my dad made a pact that if anything happened, she would keep running and he would go back and face the consequences. So then living in a um, refugee camp in Italy for six months and they had a choice. Did they want to go to America or different part of Europe that was free or did they want to come to Australia? And at the time, my mum just wanted to be in a hot country that was near the ocean. So Australia ended up being their point of call. Now, these were people that had nothing. They didn't speak the language. They had no family. So I grew up very, very poor. Um, and it was it was a huge struggle for both of my parents. They divorced when I was four. And, you know, my mum had to work two jobs in a factory in the morning and waitressing at night just to support my brother and I. So, um, you know, when we're talking about white privilege, it's not that we, people have had it easier, but it's just that our colour in a way, makes it easier for us when we're living in countries like Australia or 
other places where um, there is still a lot of work to be done. Mm. Um, so that was my story. We were refugees. And when you wow. look at the refugee story all over the world, you know, when you look at what's happening in, you know, with I'm living in Mexico now, um, with children that are being deported without their parents from the States and then, you know, missing along the way, whether that's through child trafficking, organ trafficking, whatever it is, we've still got a huge problem on the planet mm. um, with the refugee crisis and, and really with what's going on in the world. Why do we have borders in the first place? It is, I, I, I pray and I hope that one day, each and every single person uh, is able to travel freely wherever they want to go if they have the means and, and the way forward for them and the desire. You know, mm. it shouldn't be that this is my country and it's not your country. It's ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, it really is. Thanks so much for sharing that part of your story. How interesting. Um, Pleasure. Thank you yeah. for asking. Yeah, it's so fascinating where people come from. And in your bio, I noticed that you mentioned eco-psychology, which kind of stood out to me. Can you share a little bit more about what that is? Because my feeling is that it's about this idea of that we are connected to the earth and why we need to be, um, how that influences our psychology and our connections with each other. Yeah, the, the, the word and the concept of eco-psychology became really popular in the 70s. And why I think it's making a, such a resurgence now and why it's so important to really honour that path is because it really does take into account everything that you and I have been experiencing in our lives and sharing, which is um, our innate well-being is not separate from nature. So for most of us that are living in the modern world, that, that, that are living in, you know, shoe boxes, square boxes, in flats and apartments, have a look at what that is doing to individuals and to a society. We're so disconnected from our neighbour. We're so disconnected from the natural world. And in that, um, there, is, there is a disconnection with ourselves. So hence you know, the drilling, the coal, the, the, the coal gas, the, the fracking, all of these things are happening. But because we, we don't necessarily see it happening, it's happening out there, people are not more proactive. You know, because we've got concrete over the earth, because we're living in these isolated environments, we're not understanding that nature is not separate from us. We are actually nature. So eco-psychology eco runs and works with the premise that for us to be in optimum health and well-being means that we are in optimum relationship with nature. And any time that we are depressed or we're ill or we're not, we're not in alignment with ourselves is because of our inherent disconnection with the natural world. Mm. So that is the premise of eco-psychology. How can we foster wholeness and 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 the the inner sanctity of the wild one, the inner wilderness, in our relationship to the wilderness that is without, that is all around us. You know, people always talk about nature as if it is something separate from us, but it's not. We are a part of nature, yeah. and and the more and more that we connect with that, the more and more that we 
uh, foster, you know, if you're living in the city, going out for walks in the bush, going to the ocean, making sure that you have your, your nature fix, if you don't have it in your everyday environment, is going to rapidly improve one's inner well-being, especially for those people that are experiencing depression or a really tough time, my suggestion is go out and be in nature because nature is our best medicine and she will support and heal us every step of the way. A concrete environment will not do that for us. It will just enhance the sickness that is already permeating so much of society. Absolutely, yeah, and that's where we see this rewilding movement, but also the way, like you said, living in a concrete box or a small unit or in a city where there's a lot of electromagnetic fields, and it's having a huge impact on our physiology, on our nervous system. It's been proven that when you're inside four walls all the time, that the nervous system is responding in a different way. If you're not resetting by grounding, being barefoot on the earth, going into nature, the ocean, that sort of thing. So people are really just walking around and have become desensitised and accustomed to their nervous systems operating in this sort of overdrive or this shutdown, so that fight or flight, and then the shutdown with that as well. And like you said, if you're, living, if you're already experiencing depression or sadness or anxiety, you need to reset the nervous system. We really need to be getting back to a place where we're not just surviving, where we're thriving, where we can also come to a sense of calm um, and stillness, where there's some clarity in our mind. Because when you slow down, it's so much easier to be present and to really enjoy each moment and have a fulfilling life while we're here for such a short time. But so unfortunately, true, people are in, we're in the cages. <laughs> we need to get out of the cage and get back to the forest as a metaphor. And I'm so interested in how our nervous systems operate in that way as well. Thanks for clarifying eco-psychology. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, our name Nest or oh, someone yeah. like, yes. you know, okay, yeah, yeah. coined that term. Um, yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, a beautiful practice that I love to have because, you know, even the trees and the rocks and the plants, as you know, darling, because I know you're on this path, you and I speak the same language and the more we're, we're sharing this space, the more I'm realising that, um, is just to, to be uh, in the presence of a tree mm. and rather than invading that space and just walking up to it as if it's, you know, can we engage in a non-verbal dialogue with a tree and actually acknowledge it as another sentient being? You know, it's been proven that trees communicate with each other, that they send out pheromones when they're being attacked by bees or other plant or objects, and they have these intricate systems, root systems that are all interwoven and connected with each other. So that you know, they're they're families. They, they are very much alive and they're very much, they very much have a consciousness. Mm. Um, so I invite anyone who wants to explore the concept of eco-psychology or the, the possibility that if they're feeling out of balance, that perhaps nature does have some medicine for them and not just to go in there but to, to be, to mm. sit to to begin a dialogue and how do we do that by asking questions 
you know, to really firstly sit with ourselves and, and tune in. I mean, how many people don't even know how they're feeling on a moment-to-moment basis? You know, we're living in a world where there is so much modern medicine that is available to us, and yet there is so much sickness mm. and so much more mental sickness. And, and uh, you know, there are other ways. There are other ways that we can reconnect with ourselves um, and with the totality of life. Mm. Yeah, the mycelium, the tree networks that you mentioned, so the roots have a big fungal network, big mycelium network. Um, that's right. And that's how they communicate. So they send chemical signals and electronic signals through this mycelium to connect with each other through kilometres. It's the largest living exactly. organism, mycelia. Which um, oh, also the trees have been proven to be responding with their, their physiology, so the fluids that run through. Um, to celestial happenings, so different planets uh, being close, the moon forces, that sort of thing. There's mm. definitely a proven science there, which just reminds us that we are also. And then the plant medicine that comes from that, so when you talk about the mycelia and the function and the wisdom that this mycelia has, and for one example, there's so many plant medicines, but the medicinal mushrooms that many cultures have known about and used for so long mm. are so potent for resetting and healing, so really tonifying our immune system, our endocrine systems, um, to help us become a little bit more connected, a little bit more whole and healthier again from, from the toxins of the world, the mental toxins of the world. So that's just one example of how plants can really assist us. We can look at their function in the ecosystem, their power, their wisdom, and then when we consume that and we use that medicine, it is correlating. It's giving us that same wisdom and that same energy. So I would love to hear more. There's a few things actually. So I know you work with plant medicine Mm. and um, in your journey through life and connecting to spirit and also your healing to become more whole through loss of Alakai and your mother, how you have um, been able to tap into plant medicines, but also ceremony. So I know mm. that is a huge part of your life and mm. something I'm really fascinated. I do my own little small rituals, but I really want to strengthen that and make that a bit more intentional. Um, and yeah, more conscious in my action with that. So I'd love to hear how you incorporate ceremony, ritual and plant medicine in your life for well-being, but also in your healing. And I know you share that with people also. Great question, darling. Uh, look, you know, as you're talking to me, I see another podcast for you as well, yeah. which yeah, is going to be to around your... An hour. <laughs> Your, your, but that, that's as in another podcast series for oh, you right. that will, yes, yes, as yes. you continue to evolve and things like that. But we'll yes. talk about that afterwards. Um, yes, for me, ritual and ceremony is an important part of, 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 of all of our ancient traditions and wisdom. Why? Because it connects the material world with the sacred. So, you know, whether it's a birthday celebration or whether it's a wedding or a, a, a death or anything, you know that we do have uh, rituals, but they're very much steeped in um, uh, more of the Christian way of being. So I bring rituals 
like for instance, my one of my dearest and oldest friends died last year and I facilitated um, a celebration of life ceremony for him. Uh, and it was, it, it, it was a space where everyone was allowed to be with all of their emotions. It was a celebration of his life and his spirit. And with, the, with his ashes, um, and for anyone who's ever held ashes, you know that it's not just ashes, it's like bone and grit. And uh, Philip was a tall man, six foot three, so there was a lot of bone and grit. And for instance, nobody of his, in his family or his friends had really been to anything or participated in anything like this. At the end of the ceremony, uh, towards the end, I invited that he wanted his ashes, you know, scattered over the ocean. I invited each of his friends to, to, to bring a little bit of the ash of his ashes into their hands and to say their own prayer and to scatter it into the ocean. And it was an inspiration that came to me during the ceremony. And I remember so many people going, oh, my God, this is so scary. I don't know if I can do this. And I said, well, you don't have to. And given the choice, every single person in that ceremony did participate. And the one common theme that everybody said was how profoundly healing it was for them to hold a part of him that was so tangible and to say their own prayer and to give it to the ocean. And it was a stormy day and so many people were in these beautiful clothes that they went up to their waists in. So it brought that experience, a ritualistic experience that wasn't removed from the process of what was going on, but it was deeply embodied and felt and they were able to perhaps get closer to his death process but also his rebirth than what they'd ever had before because they weren't then removed from the experience. So for me, having an altar, setting up an altar space, a sacred ceremonial space in your home, which I have wherever I go, is makes sense to me. We have beds, we have a kitchen, we have a table. Uh, we, we set up spaces in, in all of our lives that represent something. Why wouldn't you have something that represents the sacred where you can actually work with it, where you place a candle and flowers, something that represents love in your life, what is it that you'd like to call in? What is it that you'd like to foster more? You bring in a physical representation of that and work with the power of prayer and intention and gratitude because for me, there is no separation between our world and spirit. We're just a physical representation of what's happening all around us in the world of the intangible. And if you want to know how your consciousness is, just look around you. How are your relationships? How are your finances? How is, is the love, your health? Everything is a representation of something that is going on within us on a very, very deep level. Um, the use of ceremony is also very important with me when, when I facilitate medicine ceremonies, with particularly with Wachuma or San Pedro, with, with my beloved Frederick. Um, why? Because it brings in that sacred container. Uh, it means that what is happening in that space is deeply intentional, that that space is safe and that it is sacred and that it is held. Um, 
and so the use of the use of San Pedro within my work is is another tool is not the be-all and end-all it is an amazing plant medicine for opening different states of consciousness for people for connecting in with their heart and on a purely physical level like the ayahuasca and like many of the plant medicines it is also an incredibly alkaline medicine so it is an inc- uh, beautiful for healing um, discord on an, a physical level but also emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and we also facilitate very strong preparation practices as in the work that we facilitate in 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 our group process work and also very strong integration practices and i think for both frederick and i um, that is a huge point of difference to a lot of other people that i see that are facilitating plant medicine work uh, for us it's not the end it's only the beginning it's the doorway the work that we do around that is equally as important, if not more. Yeah, that's really, really um, important to note, I think, and, mm. and fantastic for me to hear. I haven't explored the plant medicines such as San Pedro or Ayahuasca much myself, but um, I'm fascinated by it. And it's so great to have it put in that context that it is a gateway and a doorway. And then it's what you do with that and how you take yes. that, integrate that into your being and into your action and that sort of thing so it's not yeah just this central event but um i can see how it would be a really sacred and beautiful ritual to put aside just solely by putting aside that time in your life to sit in circle and to do that and to allow the hidden to come up and to be revealed uh, whether that's the darker aspects that need to be seen or the connection to beautiful holistic divine energy as well. And so, oh, just to note, when I mentioned medicinal mushrooms for listeners out there, I was meaning more, um, not uh, <laughs> magic mushrooms. <laughs> I'm talking more about reishi and matake and these really powerful tonic herbs. <laughs> you, can, you can have those and go to work in your office job. <laughs> Same day. <laughs> you can have that and go back to yourself. Much, much happier. And oh, darling. I've heard so many beautiful, powerful healing stories <laughs> with people using ayahuasca and San Pedro and similar plant medicines and, and moving through massive um, traumas, mm. mental health issues, addictions. This is a powerful, powerful tool that has a lot of stigma and shouldn't when it's done in the right space, the safe Correct. space and done well. It, um, yeah, it could offer a huge gift to the world and is offering a huge gift to the world to many that um, choose to go down that path. Mm, mm. So true. So thank you for bringing that up. And as you said, even the uh, possibility for someone to give themselves that eight hours just to be with themselves and to be with spirit uh, is something that so many people don't give themselves that time. And even that is hugely healing. Um, and the bad rap, really, like anything, it just comes from ignorance. People will, will associate it with drugs. And, and for me, that's a whole different space. There is no energetic or consciousness in anything that is man-made. Uh, when we're looking at plant medicines, we're looking at a, a, a living, thriving consciousness 
that has that has been given to us and to the earth and been used for thousands and thousands of years by uh, traditional custodians and indigenous and ancient wisdom keepers for exactly that that purpose to to walk the path of spirit and to gain a deeper understanding of ourselves like anything if anyone abuses anything it's going to have negative effects if anyone doesn't work with the medicine properly and then use integration processes prior and afterwards also i don't advocate that either so like anything it's uh, there has to be a mature approach and an approach that is taking into account a holistic way of working with transformation of consciousness mm. yeah i love that the integration process is leading in to and after whether it's a plant medicine ceremony or any other ritual or um, transformation there really needs to be that that celebration and that even with rite of passage that integration process before and after and it feels like shamanism for to use that word because people know it well and these types of ceremonies um, that connect us to nature we're sort of thrown away with the with colonization but also the pursuit of modernism and and um, patriarchy mm. and so really it's just there's so many movements happening at the moment where we're going oh we threw too much out so there were some things that weren't to serve us anymore as we move into a modern world and there's nothing wrong with a modern world and and a different type of um of being but there are a lot of things that we threw away in the pursuit of modernism that we now need to weave back in and part of that is the shamanism the plant medicine um for me that postpartum cultural practice the certain cultural practices at rites of passage um mm. i also see that so i talk a lot about rites of passage with women but men need that as well that's not my area i'll leave that up to other people but it's for everyone for mm elderly children and so you've had some interesting teachers along the way also that have contributed to your path i'd love to hear a little bit more about them if you care to share i know we're, we're coming on an hour so <laughs> uh, gosh there's so many um i i do talk about i i do touch on them in my on my website yeah. on my about page Yep. I mention them more in detail, but for instance, you know, I have to acknowledge my first teachers uh, in in Australia when I was living there in Sydney at what was called the Earth Institute and what is now the Awareness Institute. Uh, two wonderful teachers, Paul Perfamon and Suzanne Luan. Suzanne is now living in Peru and working with the medicine with her partner as well, the Hummingbird Retreat Center. But um, you know, they were both prolific teachers, you know, in, in me getting a diploma in shamanic and energetic healing and eco-psychology. They were my real first foray into exploring um, the world of the intangible and then, and then uh, bringing it into a context that I could work with in, with people that are in the Western world because you know it's one thing to have these teachings it's another thing to be able to bring them into a contemporary context so people can actually work with them so so they were the teachers that i had in australia and then going to peru you know i worked with beautiful 
indigenous uh, wisdom keepers traditional, or should I say traditional wisdom keepers from the Amazon and the Andes as well. And uh, again, these people gave me different tools and ways of being and working. Not necessarily that would have been geared towards working with a Western person, but definitely that supported and fostered and accelerated my own growth, not to mention the work that I did. You know, I started working with plant medicines in 2007 and, um, you know, the the medicines of the world, uh, and I've explored many, as well as nature herself, they've all been extraordinary teachers. And really the greatest teacher of all for me has been life herself. And everything that I've learned through life, you know, I, I have to say beyond any teacher, beyond any tradition, beyond anything, life herself, and I'm so grateful. I mean, I'm stubborn sometimes, so I don't always learn the lessons fast <laughs> enough. <laughs> but um, I, I'm also humble enough to to get it. You know, when, when life comes at me like this, I will always be self-reflective and and see where I need to grow and where I need to stretch myself. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me of a point that you mentioned further back in the conversation about um, loss and and how you uh, were called to look at at your more darker aspects through through death, through the loss of Alakai. And I think that's such an important um, aspect as well is that we really need to look at our own shadows no matter what it is what the challenges are what is it in us that tells us that we're not deserving or that we um yeah whatever it is whatever the narrative is and after Bodhi passed I was so starkly sensitive and aware of anything so not only with the postpartum mother and any postpartum mother whether the child's in arms or not is very sensitive, but then to have the death and trauma, you become hypersensitive. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very aware of my narrative of what was going on. Of, mm-hmm. um, I had a narrative that men, males, never stay in my life. And my son didn't stay either. And I was like, oh, here's another male that's just gone. And I was really aware of this. Okay, my dad went and this male. And, and I was like, aha, uh-huh. it was a huge aha uh-huh moment because it was just this story that I was just, oh, this just happens, this always happens to me and whatever it is, it might be something completely different for someone else. This so is what so I do p- with that at that point mm-hmm. is that has happened up until now, this has felt like this up until now, but from here on in I choose something different or I will allow this into my life or I am worthy and then the gratitude that can come from that, that you need to cultivate day by day. So what's really sung to me throughout is you've mentioned gratitude a number of times and really mm. cultivating that gratitude rather than focusing on what you've lost but being thankful for what you have. And it all ties back into needing to be connected to nature because when, and death and life, and when you are starkly connected to death, you have gratitude for life. And when you're very strongly connected to nature, you have gratitude for what we are, what we're gaining from nature, that we give thanks to nature for our life. And that Mm. gratitude just seems to be the common theme, something so simple and so beautiful that we can bring in as a daily uh, practice and ritual and embody to bring us back to centre as well. So true, Shelley, so true. Um, And 
and as you shared, you know, like as Carl Jung said, unless until we make the unconscious conscious, it will literally rule our lives and mm. we'll call it fate. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, he was an incredible wisdom keeper as well. And, you know, you know, as you said, the gratitude for everything, every small thing, there is always someone who has a story that is, that is always worse. Yes. That is, you know, I'm just grateful that I actually got to experience pregnancy I'm grateful that I was able to experience birth. I, no, I haven't had another child since Alakai, but I am a mother. Mm. And, I have, and I have experienced what it is like to physically birth a child. Some women don't even get to experience that. Mm. So, uh, and, I, and I now have an experience of this beautiful soul who's always with me that I wasn't aware of. And his name, I named him three days before I went into labour. Labour, it means spiritual guide, mm. um, teacher, healer. And so in a way, on some unconscious level, I always knew he was going to be my spirit guide. Mm. And, and here he is, actually, literally, he really is. Yeah. Um, there are no mistakes in life. There are no coincidences. We have an infinite universe that is kind and compassionate, even it, through all the atrocities that are going on, uh, we have to believe that spirit is working for us, uh, not against us. And so we don't necessarily understand, uh, we don't understand a lot of things, but, but we can certainly, as you said, practice an attitude of gratitude and continue to be grateful for what we do have. Mm. Uh, for our health, for being able to eat every day, for the that we don't live in a country that's war torn. There are so many things to be grateful for, and these days, being older and and hopefully a bit wiser, um, that is more where my focus is, not yeah. on what I don't have. Absolutely, I think by cultivating that attitude of gratitude, and also believing that spirit is compassionate and kind, in turn leads our actions to contribute to a culture where that is what it is whereas if we believe oh the world it's being destroyed and it's destructive and yes we can still acknowledge those things it's not about spiritual bypassing and not acknowledging those but um when you do the holistic eagle eye picture we can still look at okay mining's happening there but overall the greater pattern um spirit whatever people want to give name to it or essence to it is kind and compassion. When we believe that, when we're thinking that every day, our actions are going to lead to that manifesting in the world with each other and with earth. And then that's what it will be. That's as simple and as hard as that. I guess. So true, darling. You know, people are always looking outside at what they can do. And how about the invitation of the, the true change on, on the consciousness of this planet will be happening one person at a time. Mm. As we change, so will our focus, so will our choices in what we buy, what we consume, what we don't consume. And if there is no need for something, it, it will go. So mm. the fact that we still need certain things and we still have certain parts of our cultural awareness or consciousness focused on those things will keep that keep keep that perpetuated so 
So if we want to see change in the world, we, we have to start within because that's the only power that we really do have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you. I'm aware that we've gone over an hour and I think that's such a powerful note to start to wind down on. So, Beata, I'd love for you to share with people just briefly um, your offerings, the work you do, where they can find you, and I'll put links up in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Um, well, as you know, uh, some people have been confused as to where, where I live. I, I left Sydney six months ago to be with my partner, Frederick. Uh, um, so we now live half of the year here in Mexico and we live the other half of the year in Europe. We both uh, work with men and women. So we've got an upcoming retreat from the 8th to the 15th of June in Portugal where we're working with the San Pedro. And then I have a women's retreat with my dear friend Ivana Ianifa in Bali from the 28th of September to the 5th of October where no plant medicine is involved. It really is just deep shamanic earth-centered practices, which is going to be amazing. And uh, again, following that in the 20th to the 27th of April next year, we'll be facilitating an absolutely gorgeous retreat here in Bali, uh, sorry, in Mexico for men and women. I facilitate one-on-one Skype sessions and I do travel the, wor- the world, you know, offering workshops um, and programs and talks and, and things like that. I'm working on my book at the moment. So um, I continue to to engage in in my creativity which is it's which is really what what juices me up and and i love the work that i do and the fact that frederick and i are going to be focused much more on on the land and on on the earth with our offerings as well as setting up a retreat center is is really exciting and bringing more of the ancient wisdoms into a contemporary context so that people can remember who we all are oh beautiful making it accessible to all. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure connecting more. <laughs> I'm sure it will happen again. Likewise. I'll get back to my yes. morning and you can get back to your evening. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Biata. Thank you so much. Touch. So much love. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I really hope there was something there for you. Please feel free to head on over to Instagram and Facebook pages, Pollination Mamas, and leave your thoughts, ideas, inspirations, feedback. I'd also really love for this to partly be a collaborative experience for all of you out there listening and to hear what topics, ideas for guest speakers that you might have. And also, if you feel to, I would really appreciate if you head on over to iTunes, Anchor FM and the other platforms and left a review for the Pollination Mamas podcast. This helps for the podcast to be seen more and to get the word out there of these topics that we're all discussing to a larger audience. I found podcasts so helpful to feel a bit more connected to ideas that I didn't realize were um, so common amongst us all so yeah also feel free to share with anyone out there that you feel may gain something from this i also have a sign up on my website pollinationmamas.com where i send out approximately a monthly mail out 
with latest podcasts, sales on my small batch, largely homegrown herbal products, latest workshops and other thoughts and ideas that I might pop up on the blog occasionally. So thanks again for tuning in and hope to have you listening again soon. Have a wonderful day. Bye.